following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Reading this morning from Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17, if you want to follow along as I read. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of some place I can't pronounce. Piha-hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took his 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth, in front of Baal-zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. (laughs) 
the Christian life is clearly uh, all about faith. And that was true for us as believers. It's true of Israel. Uh, what they needed at a time like this was faith. Um, it is how we come to be saved, right? And the, uh, as we looked at, the, the Israelites had to participate by faith in, in, in receiving and in, in taking up the Lord's Supper as an act of faith in order to walk into God's salvation. And same for us. We need faith to receive God's amazing gift of what he's done through Jesus on the cross. And not only does it save us, save us but it's, it's our walk of faith. It says we live out by faith that we, we live a successful Christian life. Right? Faith is really at the core of everything. And it's just um, the most important skill, um, if you want to call it that, uh, element of our life as a believer. But we also know, uh, if we've walked very far down the path of life of Jesus, that faith is not easy. In fact, faith can be quite challenging and difficult. It's not automatic. Uh, most of us don't easily trust or believe in God. Uh, so what is it that makes it so hard? What is it that made it so hard for the Israelites when you know, the armies of Egypt are pressing in them, about to wipe them out, to, to, to not say, this is no problem, I know God's going to take care of this. Right? That's not what they said. Why is it faith is so, so difficult? Well, I believe that uh, the, the main problem, one of the, the great enemy of, of faith is fear. Fear. Uh, and we're going to look at how uh, fear uh, worked in the life of the Israelites, how as the, as the army of Egypt was pressing in, it was their fear that just evaporated any semblance of faith they had, just wiped it out. Right? And they uh, did not handle it very well as they were gripped with fear. As it says in verse 10, when the Egyptians marched after them, they feared greatly and they started to complain. They started to back away from their faith. Um, and I was thinking about this, we were actually, as we were driving here this morning, talking about kind of this world events. And it's remarkable how everywhere you look in the world, there's fear, right? People all over the place. And, and I think people are coming more and more fearful. Uh, and oftentimes we see prejudice and hate and, and confusion and riots. And, and behind the, I, I really believe behind a lot of that is just fear, fear. Um, and it's interesting with the, the, uh, uh, the result of fear for the Israelites is that, um, you know, instead of pressing into God and saying, boy, we're kind of in a jam here, backed up against the Red Sea, the Egyptians are coming, let's trust God. Instead, they, they wanted, what do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. They, they, after just days, I mean days, after being set free, they're so quickly eager to put themselves back into bondage and slavery. That's, that's what fear does. That's what fear does is it erodes faith, eliminates our options, and causes us to take huge steps backwards in our Christian life and in our walk with God. Um, and it's true not only for the Israelites, but I believe it's true in our own Christian life as well. If we don't... Uh, <laughs> if we don't... Uh, we don't, if we're not diligent and careful to check fear in our own life, uh, it will gain victory over faith. And these two things really are mortal enemies. Where there is faith, fear must die. Where there is fear, faith must die. 
And so for us, it's important that we, uh, we learn to trust God. Uh, and you may say, well, I don't feel like my, my life is dominated by fear. I, I feel like I'm a pretty brave person. Anybody say that? Believe that? Right? Well, fear has an interesting way of working so far underneath the surface that oftentimes we're not a, a really aware of how much fear drives us. But, but here's the test. When is it easier for you to trust God? When everything is going great or when you're facing a catastrophe? Right? Um, when, when, when God's providing and he's supplying, things are going well, life is go, going great, it's easy to trust God, right? But when you get backed up against your Red Sea and life is falling apart, what is our natural instinct? To trust God more or to do like the Israelites and say, God, what are you doing to me? Well, I definitely am in the second boat. Uh, fear is there a lot more than we may realize. And uh, the evidence of it is how difficult it is for us to really trust God when things seem impossible. Peter, you know, in the boat, storms are there, the disciples are afraid, Jesus comes walking on the water, Uh, Jesus says, do not what? Do not be afraid. Peter says, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to get out of the boat. Jesus says, fine, get out of the boat. Peter steps out of the boat, he starts walking on water. Coolest thing ever. So what happens? He sees the waves and the storm around him and he becomes afraid. And what happens to faith? It's gone. It's gone. Uh, so, whether or not we recognize in our own life, the reality is that uh, fear is a, is a real thing. And it destroys faith. Um, now, some of you would, would, would say, uh, well, yeah, but... Uh, of course they were afraid. Wouldn't you be? Isn't this a natural and normal response when you're about to get run over by a fierce charging army? Right? I mean, the Israelites uh, walked out of, of, of Egypt as slaves. Right? They didn't have swords. They didn't have shields. They did not have chariots. And here comes this crushing army, the most powerful army in the world of that time, dominated the rest of the world. And here's this uh, very ill-equipped tribe of slaves who wouldn't be afraid? Isn't that normal and natural? Um, and we all, we all know this kind of fear, um, that it's natural and normal for us to be afraid when our life is in peril or when we feel threatened, right? So uh, my grandkids, my Thai grandkids here, they are scared to death of Thai soy dogs, right? The little dogs that run around the street. That I, I really wish... Really, it's really unfortunate that Thai people don't eat more dogs, because that would solve a lot of problems. It's my, it's my, my approach to the problem. Um, right, so there's some fear of, of getting bit, right, attacked by a dog. Um, when I was a kid, one of my great fears was getting a shot. I hated going to the doctor, because every time I went to the doctor, I was convinced they were going to give me a shot. And uh, I would do anything to get, get a shot. Just let me die. Okay, I'll die. Just don't give me a shot. Um, be afraid of the dark, afraid of eyes. These are normal fears, and aren't these a good thing? Don't, don't these protect us? Well, uh, I think we need to make a distinction between fear, as it's used in the Bible, what's meant by fear, versus avoiding pain. Avoiding pain is a natural God-given gift that prevents us from killing ourselves, right? from doing really stupid things. And uh, we call it fear, but really it's not, it's not fear like what the Bible's talking about here. It's simply the, the natural instinct to avoid pain that, that preserves life. That it helps us make good choices about things. Like, 
very early, uh, very early children learn not to stick their 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 hand in the fire. Is because they're afraid of fires? Well, not really. It's just they're they're mindful of the pain that will result from that. Um, we're not really afraid of heights, right? If I see a tall skyscraper, I don't run from it. Uh, but if I'm on top of the tall skyscraper and I'm looking over, I might feel a, a strong word of caution somewhere deep in my gut that says, don't take another step, because it's going to really hurt. Right? Fear of pain. Um, right, that's a good thing. But that's not what, Bible, what Scripture means when, it's, when it uses the word fear. And Scripture fear uh, is, is depicted... Um, ultimately as a result of sin and the devastating consequences of sin, namely death. That is what the Bible means by the phrase fear. And as it's used throughout Scripture, uh, that's really what it's talking about. It's a a terror that grips us, that prevents us from believing God and trusting Him. Um, Hebrews 2.15, I keep reading this, this passage keeps coming up a lot for me lately, but Hebrews 2.15 says it just so clearly. It says this, that, that through fear of death, we were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, let me read it again. Through fear of death, we have become subject to a lifelong slavery. But that, that really describes what the Bible means when it uses this word fear. It's not just the, the pain of the physical pain of death. It's the reality of knowing that death is wrong. There's something about death that is not what God designed for us. And what's wrong about death is sin. Right? Sin has put us under a death sentence. And it doesn't just mean that our physical body stops. It means that we, we, we will stand someday before God when we die. And we must give an account for our life. And deep down inside, every human being has a sense that they're guilty, right? That, that to stand before God is going to be a, a terrible thing, much worse than just stopping to breathe, right? Because we face then eternal death. Whatever that means, whatever that's all about, we, we have the sense that that's bad, right? And every, every person has this sense that's much greater than just the fear of a pain. It's, it's the deep dread of standing before an eternal God being unrighteous and unholy beings. It's very interesting. A guy named Ernest Becker wrote a a brilliant book. If you've never read it, it's called The Denial of Death. He's not a believer, not a Christian, but he argues in this book quite well that it's this fear of death that dominates and drives virtually all human behavior. I don't have time to go into all all of why he believes that, but I just think it's significant that here's a person who's not even a Christian, he's a psychologist, who's identified and recognized this universal human dread around death that has, uh, in, in the world's eyes, no logical explanation. Right? They, don't, they, they can't prove that the, all out atheist who doesn't believe in God has no, no logical, rational reason to fear death, yet deep down inside, they dread death. And it drives, subconsciously it drives, he explains, drives everything that we do, much of what we do, how we live. Um, and at the root of that is, of course, sin and death. Um, so, so Hebrews 2 says that this dread, it's this dread, this fear of death that Satan uses to wield his power over us and hold us in bondage. Right? Um, and, and you see that for the Israelites. Here they are, they have been 
very much set free. They are now no longer slaves in Egypt. They are free to go where they will. They are no longer having to show up every morning at you know, the crack of dawn to make bricks for Pharaoh. Now they can take a leisurely walk through the desert. Um, they can go fishing at the Red Sea. Right? They are free. But are they really free? Well, no, they're not. And we see them as they're backed up against the Red Sea. They are still in the spiritual bondage of slavery to the fear of death. The closer the army gets, it says they are, they are uh, deeply fearful that they are going to be destroyed, that their lives are going to be lost. Um, so fear is a destructive force um, that, is, that is evil. Right? It is evil. It is, it is not just an instinct. It's not just a survival mode. The fear that the Bible talks about is, is, is an enemy that we must fight against. And it is an enemy that will absolutely destroy faith in our life. Um, so you might wonder, well, how is it that fear chains us in bondage? Um, that may seem for us maybe not like an obvious thing. What, what does that mean that fear traps us, that fear enslaves us? How does it do that? Uh, how does it keep us trapped in sinful habits and behaviors? Well, I think the Israelites uh, demonstrate this in a very visible way in this account. Right? They've been they've been set free. They've been saved. Um, and they really have experienced uh, this dramatic salvation, right? I mean, they've seen God overpower every single one of the gods of Egypt, one by one after the, the, the 11 mighty signs, the 10 plagues, right? Boom, boom, boom. Every time uh, he, he just annihilates the gods of Egypt. And then the last phase of it all, he, he delivers them from death. Um, uh, and they've seen all this, right? They've experienced this firsthand. And a few short days later, uh, as, as the Egyptians are coming, it's like their brain checks out, right? And, and they start seeing reality through very distorted, a very distorted lens, very distorted view. And what's interesting in this account is that their, their view of reality is distorted in two different ways. First, uh, their view of what's presently happening gets greatly twisted and distorted. Why, why was the Egyptian army chasing and hunting them down? What well, says that Pharaoh was thinking about that? He's going, what, what have I done? I've just given away our whole entire labor force. Now we're going to have to go to work because all of Egypt is going to come to a halt because we've just lost our entire labor force. What was I thinking? So what is his purpose? Well, he's going out there not to kill them. He's going back there just to capture them and drag them back into slavery. Which, ironically, Israel would have been fine with. Right? They're going, well, that's, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want. Right? So they have a very distorted view of their present situation. Um, they weren't coming to kill them. Right? They are just coming to capture them. But what they see, what they, they exaggerate their present state. And what they see is death staring them in the face. Right? Fear does that. It clouds our vision so we can't clearly see the truth. Uh, how many of you are an optimist? How many of you are a pessimist? You don't have to raise your hand. But an optimist or a pessimist, which are you? Um, Denise and I have interesting conversations about this because we're, we're very opposite on this one. Right? The pessimist has no confidence that things will end well. 
In this case, apparently the Israelites are pretty pessimistic. Right? They're not coming to take us back to slavery. That'd be okay. They're coming to kill us. Right? The optimist, on the other hand, has tons of confidence that everything is going to work out. Right? So the pessimist says, the Egyptians are coming to kill us. The optimist says, hey, look, they're coming to give us a party. <laughs> Farewell. They, they miss us already. Isn't that sweet? Right? That's what the pessimist does. Right? Um, which is better? Well, the reality is neither pessimism or optimism is good. Because at the bottom of both, what drives both is actually fear. Right? We see a reality that makes us fearful, and so we create what we want to happen. Uh, driven by fear. And the problem is that both tend to be huge distortions of the truth. Right? Uh, the overly pessimistic, the overly optimistic are both distorting truth as a way of managing fear in their life. That's why I'm a realist. Right? I win. I'm a realist. <laughs> My wife would say, no, you're a pessimist. <laughs> She's probably right. Um, so it distorts and clouds our view of what we, what's really going on around us. Right? It makes us crazy. Secondly, it distorts our view of the past. Uh, I love, this is just one of the most amazing verses of Scripture to describe how human nature works, especially under the bondage of fear. Let me read it again. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? A very sarcastic, bitter, biting phrase. Like, we couldn't just die in Egypt. You've got to bring us out here to die because there's not enough graves in Egypt. Right? Pretty bitter. Isn't this what we told you? Leave us alone so we can serve the Egyptians. Now, we've just been studying this through the story. Do you remember them ever actually saying that? I don't remember them ever actually saying that. Um, in fact, it says that they were so oppressed by their, their slavery and by the difficulty of it that they did what? They cried out to God to save them. Um, already they've forgotten that. Three days down the road and already they've forgotten how terrible their suffering was. And how um, this oppression was actually intended to kill them. Remember we looked way back. The, the, the goal of all this slavery was not just to get labor out of them, but ultimately the Pharaoh was trying to kill them off. And of course he did kill their children, their, their newborn babies. Um, it was extreme oppression and unbearable treatment. But already they've forgotten all that. Um, you know, were the good old days really ever all that good? You ever say, that? oh, I wish we go back to the good old days. Because here's what happens. This is exactly what happens with the Israelites. We don't like to remember the pain and difficulty and struggle. So that's the part we forget. And what do we remember? Well, we remember the good stuff. We remember the happy moments. We remember things that were pleasant. So a few days down the road, past, the past all of a sudden gets way better than it ever really was when we were actually living there. It's exactly where the Israelites are. And the result of this distorted view of reality is what? Okay, they, they can't see clearly the present. They have this idealized view of the past. So what do they want to do? They want to go back to where they came from. They want to go back into bondage. I'm going to go back into slavery. So you see, that's how fear keeps us enslaved. It causes us to turn, want to turn back. Because um, 
uh, we see the current situation as hopeless, and it shakes our confidence that God can bring us into the future he has promised. So we see our only option is to go back to the past because that is comfortable to us. We think, wrongly, that that promises safety and comfort to us because it's familiar. So, so to kind of spiritualize this a little bit, um, you've maybe heard the, slo- the slogan of the phrase, better the trouble we know than the trouble we don't know, right? Better to go back to the problems that we know than to go forward into some unknown, uncertain future that could be filled with even worse problems. So our human bent, because of fear, is to always go backwards. Uh, so to spiritualize this a little bit, it's better the sin that we know that gives us some measure of satisfaction and comfort. The reality is, we like sin because it, it does temporarily promise hope to make us happy, to satisfy us, to fulfill us. And even, we know, even though we know over and over again it doesn't really work, we forget. Right? And when fear hits, we want to turn back to sin uh, rather than the righteousness that we don't know and by which we are just not convinced will bring us joy and peace and happiness. And so fear keeps us trapped. And for that reason, fear really is evil. It is the absolute enemy of faith. And as scripture makes clear, uh, it holds us in bondage to sin. So fear is not something we can ignore or not think about, worry about. It's real. It's in our life. And it will keep us bound to the sinful habits and practices in our life that prevent us from experiencing the joy God wants for us. Uh, to put it in kind of a word picture, imagine a person has is, is, is gotten themselves stuck on a very high cliff, this huge, huge cliff wall, and they're, they're standing on a very narrow, thin ledge that disappears on both sides. They're standing on this ledge, and there's no way they can go up, and there's no way they can go down, and, and they're, they're standing there, but the ledge that they're on is slowly by little crumbling away under their weight. And it's just a matter of time before the whole thing shears off and they plunge to their death. Uh, to make matters worse, they're enshrouded in this fog. And so they hear this voice from out of the fog say, Hey, I'm here. I see you. You just need to jump. Because right in front of you, about five feet ahead of you, four feet ahead of you, is, is solid land. You just need to jump into that fog and I'll catch you. I will make sure you make it. You just need to jump. What would you do? What would you do? Would you hold on to the reality you know or take a leap of faith into what you don't know? Right? That's the test. And that's exactly where Israel was. Um, God was telling them to just trust him and jump. They're going, no, actually, I'm not sure about that. I think I'll go back to Egypt. So how do we overcome this fear? How do we deal with this? Well, he gives us four things in this passage. There's probably many other ways, but four here of how to deal with it. So let's look at these real quickly. Four ways to attack fear in our life. First of all, no death, no fear. Uh, first issue is you have to deal with the source of fear. Fear is evil and it's of Satan, but it's not without basis. Right? As I said, the, base, the, 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 the leverage fear has over us is death, that we... No, deep down inside, we're going to stand before God and give an account for our life. And that's really the dread or terror of death. 
And praise God, he has dealt with the true source of fear, that is sin and death. Hebrews 2.15 finishes, uh, well, as I read, Hebrews 2.15 says that through fear of death we were subject to lifelong slavery. But 2.14 actually gives the answer, so they're kind of flipped. The answer is this, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of flesh, partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus died to conquer death so that we would no longer fear it, so that it would have no longer power over it. And that was for the Israelites, the exact point of the Passover. It was greatly pictured, beautifully pictured in the Passover where they were to slaughter a lamb and they were to paint its blood on the doorpost, right? And what happened? When death came, they did not have to fear death. Why? Because it passed over them. They escaped death because of the blood of the Lamb. In the same way, Jesus is our great Passover Lamb. And he has defeated death for us. And when we apply his blood to our life, we do not need to fear death because we will, sure, we'll die in this body. But when we die, it's not judgment. It's birth. It's not the end of life. And it's not the beginning of God's eternal destruction upon us. It's the beginning of life with him forever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.54 puts it this way. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is when our, our temporary body puts on a permanent body, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your, um, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus has conquered death. So we no longer have a reason to fear. This is awesome. So uh, at the the root of every fear, and again, this is not not to say we can jump off a cliff, because the pain is still there. Jesus did not take away pain. He's taken away the, the consequences of death. There's absolutely nothing in this world we need to fear. Because what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, you could die, but that's actually the best thing that could happen to you. That's really the best thing that can happen to us. Because to be out of this body, Paul says, is to be what? Be present with the Lord. So I don't have to worry about death. I get struck by lightning? Hallelujah. It's a good thing. We don't have to fear that. But what we do need to do is we need to remember God's great salvation. We talked about this last week, so I won't belabor the point. But the problem with the Israelites is they had, they had so quickly forgotten the salvation that God had provided for them. That they were to commemorate over and over by reliving the Exodus through the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Likewise for us. It's so easy for us to forget God's great saving power in Jesus. And then when a problem comes up, we're convinced, well, God can't help us. And he's already helped you. He's already helped you with the infinite solution to your problem. But we've got to go back there often and remember his great salvation constantly. We can never overdo remembering what he's done for us. Second thing, we need to carry the promises. We need to carry God's promises. 
Uh, verse 19 is a really odd verse in the midst of all this. Let me read it again. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. I kind of love this. I'm like packing around some dead guy. Right? Uh, For Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear solemnly, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bone, my bones with you from here. This is awesome. Okay, this is awesome. A little morbid, I'll grant that, but this is awesome. Because here's the deal. Joseph, you know, he'd lived 400 and some 30 years before, died whatever, 400 years before, and, and uh, he was the, the most mighty ruler in all of Egypt. He could have been buried anywhere he wanted. Well, not the moon, okay, but uh, he could have picked, he could have said, I want you right now to take me to Israel, to Canaan. I want to be buried there, which is exactly what they did with his father, Jacob. Remember that? They took a great parade in Israel, all traveled back to Canaan, and they buried Abraham there. Joseph could have done that if he really cared that much about being buried in Canaan. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I want you to hang on to my bones. Right? And, of course, the Egyptians were good at mummification, and so it's very likely that he was more than bones. Uh, he could have very well been you know, mummified. Um, he says, I want, you, I want you to hold on to these bones and I want you to wait until God shows up to rescue you. What, what, what did Joseph do by it? What was he doing in that act? Well, he was putting before them a visible, tangible sign to remember God's promises. This is not your permanent home. God wants to, to plant you in, in Canaan. He wants to give you a nation. And he says, remember his promises to multiply you so that you will be like the sand of the sea. To make you into a great nation and to give you the land of promise. So I want you to hang on to my bones. And when God shows up to visit you, I want you to take me with you uh, as a reminder that he is going to give you the promised land. Hang on to that promise. Awesome reminder of our need to stand on God's promises. Not only do we forget God's saving work of what he's done to save us in the past, but it's so easy to forget what he's promised to do for us in the future. And that really is the basis of our hope and our faith. Right? We have to keep that super clear in our eyes what God has promised to do in our lives now, today, tomorrow, next week, and in eternity. Some of you really old people, like me, will remember the hymn, uh, Standing on the Promises. Uh, we won't sing it, but I'll read just one verse. Great words. I'm standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Uh, Too often we get blown away because we're not standing solidly by faith on God's promises. We forgot them. So we need to be carrying, uh, carrying those promises as they carried the bones of Joseph. Um, Third thing. Uh, we need to be led by the Spirit. Uh, as, the, as the Israelites uh, left Egypt, um, certainly Moses was leading them, but, and Moses had been out to Sinai. Moses kind of knew his way around a little bit, but they, in general, the Israelites had no clue. I mean, they were slaves. They were trapped in Egypt. Um, they did not have Google Maps on their phone. 
had not been invented. They didn't even have paper maps, right? They had no idea where they were going. But God in his kindness and grace does not say, well, you're saved. Hope, you, hope it goes well for you. Hope you don't get too lost. I'll see you later. Right? He doesn't do that. Uh, it says when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Okay, so God's leading them. God's at the front of the pack. And I love it. He says, he does not lead them but to the land of the Philistines, although that was close. Okay, I'm, I'm getting to think maybe we don't want to follow God. <laughs> okay, we're not going to go the short route. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, which is really the wrong direction, by the way. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them. Uh, this pillar of cotton fire was, was how God led them. And it was his, his presence. And it says that he was in the cloud. His, he, he somehow put his visible, tangible presence in front of them. And by that, he directed and led them step by step. And he knew what they needed. So when he leads them, he leads them in a, in a very gracious, careful way. He says, we're not going to take the short, direct, and consequently easiest route. Because if we do that, you're going you're to come up against the Philistines' very first thing, and you're not ready for that. You're not ready for that. Uh, it says, interestingly, the, this translation, and maybe, maybe many translations, say that they marched up equipped for battle. That terrible translation, because the word does not actually mean equipped. The word literally means to line up. It means they were lined up in battle formation. Okay, but they were about as equipped for battle as Mickey Mouse. I mean, they, they didn't have weapons. They had no knowledge how to use weapons. Like if you wanted to dig a really good ditch, they were all over that. Right? But uh, if, you, if you needed to make bricks, when they got that down, like killing people, not so much. Right? Going to war, not so much. Uh, but it says that they were, they were marching in battle formation because they were going to Canaan and they would have to fight. They would have to be engaged in battle, but God knew they were not ready. So he takes them on a scenic route. And that's why I've entitled these next three sermons the scenic route, because God is, is going to take them on a, on, a, on a much more scenic route, meaning not that the wilderness is going to be so beautiful, it's stark and barren, I've seen pictures of it, not necessarily that scenic. But what I mean by that is that God needs them to see the view of his faithfulness, his ability to provide and to protect and to take care of them. That God is with them. They need practice in this. And so God leads them, not the easy way, but he leads them actually a very hard way. And he leads them right to the Red Sea. And he does it not in a direct route, but it says that he makes them wander aimlessly. He takes them on the zigzagging route so that they end up at the Red Sea where there's no way back, right? They're, they're, they're pinned against the Red Sea. And God says he did this because he wanted to trap Pharaoh. He wanted to get Pharaoh's attention that the Israelites looked lost and they were wandering and they didn't know what to do next so that he could harden Pharaoh's heart further and make his glory over Pharaoh known even more. 
Right, so he lures, by, by this aimless wandering, he lures Pharaoh to come attack them, to capture them again. Right? It's all part of his plan. Um, if we are going to conquer fear, we must wholeheartedly learn to follow God and let him lead us. Of course, we are not led by a literal cloud or a literal fire, but we are led by the Holy Spirit. Not externally, but internally. He is our guide, and he is God's very presence who he's given to us, to every single believer, to guide them, to lead them. And God is leading you. Not necessarily in the most direct or easy route. It's important to mark and to know that. Uh, Oftentimes we follow God and we find ourselves in the midst of a mess, we think, God, what are you doing to me? I followed you exactly to avoid this. Right? We think following God means that he's promising us the easiest, most comfortable route. I'm telling you from experience, that's probably not going to happen. God doesn't like that way. He likes the scenic route. And he likes a route full of problems and troubles and difficulties. Why? Because he wants to teach you how to trust him. So he's going to make it hard. So if he's got you backed up against the Red Sea and you feel like there's no impossible way out, hallelujah, that means you're following God, right? Not always, but it's a good sign. It's a good sign that you are following him because he loves to lead you to those impossible places. Um, So how do we follow him well? Well, I really believe that following God is ultimately a matter of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's there, he is in us. And every believer. Uh, and the problem is not that he's not leading. The problem is that we're not following. And to be filled in the, with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament really has the idea of uh, not getting necessarily more of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if he's there, he's God. If he's in your life, that's God in you, right? I don't know that you need more of him. But what is needed is that he needs more of you. Right? We need to give him more control of our life. And we hate that word control. Right? The way we are led by the Spirit, the way we uh, are moved by Him is, is when we give up control over our life and give it to Him and follow Him. Right? How many of us hate this? Right? Uh, especially when fear comes. When things get difficult and they get hard and we, we are feeling fearful, what's the first thing we want to do? I want to take control. I want to fix it. I want to manipulate the circumstances. I want to manipulate people. Right? Not just controlling me. I want to control the circumstances. I want to tro- control other people. Right? Have you ever been on the other end of that? Right? Where somebody's trying to control you? Right? And behind that is, is fear. Right? And God says, the only, way I can, the only way you will be filled with the Holy Spirit is if you give Him control of your life. You hand it over to Him and trust Him to lead you in His best path. So we need to let Him lead us. Lastly, we need, to, we need to wait on God. We need to learn to wait on God. Uh, to, to do nothing but wait. 
the passage ends this way, verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. God is about to eliminate this enemy out of your life. The Lord, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord is going to fight this battle. And you only have to be silent. Uh, The ultimate way to deal with fear is to trust God. And to trust God is ultimately to wait on him. To stand firm and not run away. Do not retreat to your former bondage. Do not go back to go. Do not collect $200, right? Do not go to where you feel safe and comfortable, but to stand firm where where God has you planted and trust him. Um, Do not plot how you can control or manipulate the situation, but resolve to trust in God with the confidence that God has promised to fight your battles. And this is really the amazing thing is God wants to lead you which is amazing, but more than that, God wants to fight every battle for you. What God needed to equip them for was not how to, how to fight with swords and how to build military strategies. What they needed to learn in the wilderness was how to trust God and let him fight their battle for them. And you see that in their very first encounter in the land of Canaan, when they are at Jericho. Do they assail Jericho with big siege machines? Do they build dirt ramps? Do they take arrows dipped in tar and launch them into the city? No. What do they do? They they have a parade. (laughs) And they play the trumpet and they shout. And God crushes the city. They had finally learned by then to walk in faith. God wants to fight your battles. But to do that, it means that um, we need to wait on him. And... and, uh, to wait on him, I quoted a hymn. Now I need to quote a famous VeggieTales song. We are the pirates who don't do anything. Love that song. If you haven't seen that, you need to go back and review your VeggieTales videos. Right? Uh, we need to be people who learn to not do anything. And that's really what he means when he says, uh, you need to only be silent. What is really saying there is just sit quietly and wait on God. Don't try to fix the problem yourself. You need to not do anything. That's what waiting on God is. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, ultimately that they never do anything. But it means don't do anything until God moves and God directs you. Until God leads you. And, of course, God does that. God moves and he says, okay, I want you to start marching off into the Red Sea. Kind of a crazy idea. We'll look at that next week. God does eventually ask them to do something. God may ask you to do something. But we, we don't jump ahead of God. We wait on Him. And we do nothing until we see God move and God lead and God direct. Now the brilliant thing with this is that God put them in a place where they had absolutely no other choice but to wait on Him. Right? They, they, they were stuck. They didn't want to wait on God, but they had to. One of the difficult things for us is that too often we have too many other options where we don't have to wait on God. We can trust in our credit card or our our technology or other resources or we can run to too many other saviors to fix our problems. 
And God says, no, you must stand firm and just trust me. Wait upon me to fight your battle for you. Uh, This week I had a great reminder or experience of how this works. Uh, Actually, several months ago, we we, um, had a donor who supports our Bonsan Rock Children's Home uh, substantially, like $1,200 a month. It's like close to 50% of the budget for the whole, the whole children's home. Um, well, they, they stopped giving uh, because they're, they were giving by credit card and the credit card expired, right? So they still wanted to give. They, we contacted them. We said, is there a problem? Uh, are you pulling your support? No, no, we still want to give. We want to support. Uh, we'll fix it. So a month went by, two months went by, three months went by. I mean, it's like we, and every month we're just digging this enormous hole of debt. And, um, you know, here last December, it had been about nine months. And it's like, what are we going to do? And, and, and uh, a few days ago, I was just reminded again, you know, it's getting towards the end of another month. They still haven't given anything. And I'm just like, God, I don't know what to do. And to make matters worse... This person just doesn't do email. I mean, you email them, they just don't ever read them. Um, so sending an email, which I had done, proved to be hopeless and pointless. And uh, so Friday morning, I was praying about this, and I said, God, what should I do? Should I email them? Should I try to call them? Should I get on a plane? At this point, it would be worth it to fly to America and knock on their door. I'm like, what should I do? And I just felt God saying, I got this. Right? You don't have to do anything. Just... Just let me fight the battle. I'm a big God. I can actually move their heart. I can do this. So I prayed, okay, God, then do it. Hey, please. I, I'm praying. I'm asking. Do something. Because, um, you know, we just, we just can't tell these kids, sorry, we're closing the home. You have to live out on the street for a while. We're not an option. Right? So, but God reminded me, just wait on him. Wait. Right? It's so hard to wait. So hard. Uh, so this morning I uh, got up. First thing I saw an email. First email pops up. Uh, good news. It says just spend some time on the phone with this this couple. And this came from the, our um, our person in the United States who manages our our finances there. Just spend some time on the phone with them. They have restarted the twelve hundred dollar a month as of today. And they're making up the entire nine months missed, $10,800, right? Um, we should see it in the account in a few days. Hallelujah, right? Um, so God, God fought two battles for me this morning. First one, he fought the battle of getting this donor to, to give. He prompted them. And I believe it's in answer to that prayer and that trust. Second battle is he gave me an awesome illustration for this morning. God's good. God is good. He's faithful. Right? He, he loves you. He's going to lead you in the best path, but we must trust Him. And we've got to assail the fear that will grip us with faith, right? with trust, with obediently following Him, yielding our life to Him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.